This is Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be... Astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the Union world, part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, Scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself, and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Who knows? You might see yourself in some of them. In fact, you probably will, though we have changed some names and other details. Let's get started. So here I am a National Negotiations Officer for the Union representing specialists in the civil service, the Institute of Professional Civil Servants. My boss is an Assistant Secretary, Joe. It's the autumn of 1986, and we're working on the fringe bodies patch of smaller employers that don't readily fit into any one category. So, as well as encountering all manner of workplaces and professions... There were also all manner of employment issues too. The union had members who worked for the Commonwealth Agricultural Bureau International, which is a not-for-profit intergovernmental development and information organisation focusing primarily on agricultural and environmental issues in the developing world. Thanks for that, Wikipedia. It wasn't particularly large, 200 staff or so, which is why it ended up on the fringe bodies pitch. Nor was it a British company. Now, I don't mean it was owned by a multinational corporation or was a US, German or Japanese concern. It was an organisation created and functioning under an international charter. Frankly, this didn't really matter, except when it came to jury service. The distance between our members at the Bureau and industrial militancy was about a million miles. But the jury service issue illustrates that employers take even the gentlest and otherwise largely content workforces for granted, at their peril. When a summons to serve duly arrived, Teresa told me that three things immediately popped into her head. First, it would be a stretch to get that abstracting job for the Canadians done in time. Second, this would be different, and to be honest, she could do with a temporary change of scene. And third, this was actually a matter of civic duty, a clear obligation for citizens called upon to serve. So it was a bit of a kind of jaw-hit-the-floor moment when she was told, nope, permission declined, and if you won't tell the court, then we will. Flabbergasted didn't come close, but it wasn't the Canadian job being in jeopardy that was the major driver here. We are not a British company, and we have no obligation to help the British courts, was the line from the employer. Theresa wasn't particularly patriotic, nor was she unpatriotic, but she did have a sense of duty of citizenship, of what was right and wrong. I agreed with her. The organisation chose to accept UK employment law. Its employees enjoyed, if you like, the hospitality of the host nation. 
the clear majority of those employed were British citizens and, like Theresa, felt a sense of obligation. The daft thing was that most of the senior management were the self-same demographic. Maybe they didn't see this as an issue. Maybe they thought it would be just Theresa or any other single employee. Maybe they mistook good employee relations for docility. Yeah, definitely that last one. I'm sure things are different now. CAB International weren't unique in taking employees for granted. Take their counterparts at an environmental quango. Let's, uh, let's call them the National Climate Conference. Our member had been employed on a succession of fixed-term contracts. Regular as clockwork as one expired, a new identical fixed-term contract was offered in its place. This had been going on for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with hindsight, the job should have attracted the permanent contract it evidently warranted. But to create a new post, which is what in the eyes of some it would be, would attract hassle, and may upset the apple cart, would wake up a sleeping dog that's lying. That's lying as in the horizontal pose close to the ground, as opposed to not telling the truth. And our member, Mandy, she didn't mind, because there was never any doubt, at least in her eyes, that the promised renewal would happen, just like it had one year after the last, after the last. She didn't want to leave. They wanted her to stay. Her work was good. Her contribution valued. But this year it was different. Mandy had been pregnant and the renewal date came while she was still on maternity leave. Look, old girl, said the NCC's HR director. Bit of a pickle, this, really. You see, you're not here. I know I'm not there said Mandy. I'm on maternity leave. I know you know that too. I also know that just because I'm not at work, I am still in work, still employed. Mmm, said the HR director in a way that made the sound last four syllables. You see, that's just it. You may be off with your baby. And how is she? Managing to get a good few hours sleep of a night time. Good, 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 good. Splendid, splendid, splendid. Now, where was I? Ah, oh, yes. You may be off with your baby. But that does physically mean that you aren't here. And if you aren't here, you aren't doing the work. And, uh, well, you see, that is to say, we, we just can't carry that. Especially with you being only on a fixed-term contract. Not core. Not permanent. I'll spare you the rest of what was an increasingly tortured conversation. No, no, there was no question about her performance, the work she did, the regard in which she was held. It was all just an unfortunate accident of timing, really. No, there was no scope for negotiation. Hands were tied and all that. They were sure she would understand. Once the shock had worn off, and the baby was sleeping through, enough for her to rest too. Yes, Mandy said, eventually. Things are a bit of a blur sometimes. Look, could you just confirm all this in writing? I'm worried I, I might not remember it all clearly. That bit about my contract not being renewed, because I, I'm on maternity leave and everything. Could you do that? Well, yes, yes, of course. Of course, my dear, and thank you for being so understanding. Goodbye. Yes, yes, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, yes. And the HR director couldn't help a little theatrical flourish as he ended the call. That had gone a lot better than it might. And he'd do that letter now while it was still fresh in his mind. 
The letter duly arrived. Mandy called her local rep. That doesn't sound right, he correctly said. I need a view from head office, he said, which is how it ended up on my desk. To be fair, I couldn't actually believe what I was reading, so I read it again. I turned the one-sided hard copy letter over in case something more was on the other side, something that made sense of what was on page one, something like, just kidding. My outrage at the arrogant, hurtful way in which this employer had behaved was tempered by admiration for Mandy's presence of mind. Just put that in writing, would you? Reignited by the stupidity that meant the employer did just that, and finally called into a clear certainty about what would happen next. A cool, clear certainty, because what in reality the letter to Mandy said was, I hereby certify that, on behalf of my employer, I have explicitly discriminated against a fellow but subordinate employee, while she was on maternity leave, dismissing her following several years of continuous employment, albeit comprised of a succession of fixed-term contracts, for no other reason than she was on maternity leave. I do solemnly hold my hands up to this flagrant breach of the law, and promise to pay such compensatory payment as may be deemed appropriate. And that, more or less, is what happened. But what if the HR director had just an ounce of wit. What if he had delegated the letter writing to someone with a gram of intelligence? The blatant illegality of what was proposed would have been exposed and the whole hurt for Mandy and excruciating embarrassment, not for Mandy, would have been avoided. The coup de grace in this saga was delivered some months later. The surprisingly still-employed HR director and the chief executive sat down with Joe and myself for a working lunch. I'm not a great fan of eating and working, but the session was very productive, so it was a surprise that over coffee, storm clouds quickly gathered over the conversation, and we endured a brief deluge of, well, of frustration, pain, schadenfreude, pent-up pissed-offness. How dare he? Vague, pointy gestures in my direction. Make so much of the Mandy case. Bloody crucified, we felt. Took us for a complete ride over the compensation. We didn't, by the way. Outrageous! I stood accused. Except I was still sitting down, as was everyone else. Joe and I stared at each other with mouths open. Joe stirred his coffee and set down the spoon, carefully. Just hang on a moment, he said, evenly. Just hang on. Let's just think about this, he said. You sack our member, having refused for years to give her her proper contract. You sack her when she's on maternity leave. And you are stupid enough to put that in writing. And you say we have blame in this? The question hung in midair, just for a little bit, and then came down like a curtain smothering the ill-founded outrage. Great theatre. Joe and I should have high-fived, but this was the 1980s. I'm not sure I ever said thank you for that, Joe. So in case I didn't, thanks, mate. 
Life on fringe bodies was certainly, as you can see, never dull. Some employers were very small concerns. The London Food Commission was a campaign group funded by the dying Greater London Council. The legislation to abolish it had been passed, but not yet enacted. A game-changer in terms of research and lobbying on food, headed up by the deeply impressive Tim Lang, and very much a creature of its time. I think perhaps we forget the support given to what you might call empowerment organisations by the metropolitan councils that were so loathed by the government of the day. But there's no doubt that the organisation was in trouble. Staff, only around a dozen in number, told me that the big concern was that they would be suddenly out of work. No notice, no redundancy payments, all money spent in a futile attempt to stave off an inevitable closure. Amongst ourselves, we quickly agreed that a certain percentage of what was left in the bank should be ring-fenced, protected, for what we called lifeboat payments. When the bank balance fell to a critical point, the lifeboat would be launched. A meeting with the chair of the management committee and a couple of others was arranged. It was one of the more bizarre discussions I've had. Steve, the chair, was a tough-talking national official of the GMB union and seemed uncomfortable at being the employer's lead spokesperson in what was clearly a closure-redundancy situation. Maybe he was just uptight because he and I hadn't met before, but his discomfort increased when we set out the staff's position, which could really be no more than a suggestion. Although me concluding with a slightly melodramatic and you can take it or leave it was the only time I've ever set down such an ultimatum. Fortunately, they took it. Most staff sailed off to new destinations and a much slimmed down version of the London Food Commission was able to continue for a while beyond the abolition of their funding. There was a general challenge though about my work. The building blocks of unions and of many, many membership organisations are local branches and local reps, usually built on workplaces and sometimes even on functions or shifts within those workplaces. The local reps are crucial. The mortar in the bricks, you might say. It's the local reps who understand best what is happening in their workplace and their communities. The self-same reps will be motivated by being employed in those self-same workplaces and living in those self-same communities. The local rep is best placed to be the member's first point of contact, to represent, recruit, organise, advise, negotiate, agitate, explain. They are hugely important. That's the theory. But sometimes... There is no local rep. Then, many of those functions fall by the wayside. That's not ruinous in the short term, but there still needs to be a first point of contact for members needing assistance. On the fringe bodies pitch, at that time, that was me. NGL, as my teenage son would say, it was a bit stressy sometimes, effectively being a super branch secretary for many different and disparate groups of members. The proof positive of the importance of and load carried by volunteer local reps was never more evident than when, de facto, you had to cover for them. Sometimes I felt busier than the apocryphal one-armed juggler with crabs, and about as comfortable. That's why, for practical reasons, you just have to have a team, a network that is well-organised and well-supported. Web-based systems, call centres and AI will help, of course, but research shows Still, that it is a combination of that support with face-to-face -face engagement that members find most effective.
I was reminded of this so forcibly by our members at the Centre for International Language Training, SILT. I remember their workplace was an amazing cathedral-like cavern in Regent's Park, the shelves and air heavy with books, the four staff dwarfed by them, and a pervasive sense of tranquility at odds with the hustle and bustle outside. One of the members had a query. Left a message. I made a mental note to return the call, then got sidetracked, then remembered, then put it off till later. I was sure it was a small thing, but there was time. Then something more pressing popped up, and so on. It was a full week before I rang her back. Sorry for the delay. Is everything okay? No, it wasn't. No, she had needed to speak to me. No, no, it was too late now. No, it wasn't all right. No, she was sorry too. Ouch! That hurt. And so it should have done. The call should have been made to a local rep, but we didn't have one. So it came to me and I, I fluffed it. You could argue I had too much on my plate. And ideally that wouldn't have been so. But that's how it was and I should have got back to our member sooner. It's what she's paying her subs for. And I made sure I didn't do that again. After a couple of years on the fringe bodice patch, I moved, or I should say, I got moved, to the weapons of doom pitch. Well, it wasn't just weapons of doom. There were the spies, spooks and diplomats too. My lifelong CND supporting dad was less than happy that I passed the security checks needed to meet members on site at the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment. No prizes for guessing what they did there. Or at Bletchley Park, now made famous by films like The Theory of Everything. Bletchley Park was where I began, by meeting the head of service in a cup of tea and a chat sort of way. This was the man whose security pass number was, and I kid you not, 00000001. Very smooth, perfectly urbane. He knew far more about me than I had ever put in the pre-internet era public domain. Just so I knew he could know. The branch committee was a lively affair. Spooks and unions had recently been given an airing by the government's attempt to ban publication of former spy and union member Peter Wright's memoirs. The imported from the US copy is still on my bookshelf. Outsiders may think the work glamorous, but the talk was of the usual fare. Allowances especially for overseas work, promotion procedures, time off in lieu for the unusual hours that were often worked. There was the usual chat and banter. On one occasion about those of our nuclear weapons hosted in a friendly power halfway round the world, when a look rippled round the room like a current, and the talking stopped. My security clearance wasn't high enough to hit the end of that tale. The weapons of doom pitch brought many new experiences. One was working closely with the senior serving military officers in charge of large groups of MOD civilian staff, associated with garrisons and other centres of activity. And it was generally, no pun intended, a positive experience. There was certainly a common style, output-orientated, pragmatically minded, faultlessly polite. Made a nice change. However, it was the civil servants in the Treasury that gave me one of the more bizarre sets of negotiations and established a precedent that will hopefully never, ever be needed. It started with a call from our rep, who looked after the MOD's civilian staff, who made up the nuclear convoy teams. Nuclear warheads and missiles 
at that time were occasionally transported across the country by road, accompanied by teams from a mix of occupational homes, armed forces, armed police, drivers, loaders and so on. It must have been a bizarre and contradictory process. Weapons of mass destruction trundling sedately through idyllic country lanes, barely wide enough for the vehicles. And what happens if you meet someone coming the other way? Well, the outriders make sure the way ahead is clear, but that often involves some difficult reversing routines by oncoming traffic. But the what-if question had clearly come up. What if the process didn't work? What if there was a crash, an accident, a detonation? Setting aside for one moment that the welfare of the convoy's staff would probably be rather overshadowed by other concerns were a nuclear weapon to explode in such circumstances, our members had a point. Death in service benefits to dependents and families relied on a habeas corpus principle. Crudely speaking, you needed the body to confirm that the person had indeed passed away. In the nightmare scenario postulated by our members, that would not be possible. They'd have been vaporised. The employer was at first reluctant to make any concessions at all, seeming to fear a flood of fraudulent, bodiless claims for the death in service benefits. I had to emphasise that we weren't seeking to establish a general principle here, unless getting vaporised by a nuclear accident was in itself a generic event. Eventually we were able to come to an accord, tightly limited to the precise circumstances our members feared they might find themselves in. I think that this was probably filed away in the more trouble than it's worth to object category. The Treasury were rarely so accommodating. Perhaps the most surreal occasion was meeting Michael, the secretary of the much smaller Diplomatic Services Organisation, the Union for Diplomats. You couldn't help but warm to him immediately as we climbed narrowing and increasingly twisting staircases to his garret of an office in the uppermost reaches of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Two mugs were pulled from the wreckage of a collapsed pile of files. Take a look outside, called my host over his shoulder from where he was filling the kettle. I found myself looking down on the FCO courtyard with rows of soldiers in dress uniform lined up some twitching and fidgeting before the CO called them to order. Here she comes, murmured Michael, handing me a tea. On cue, in swept the foreign secretary, a couple of suits, no offence intended, and someone in white dress uniform, complete with a plumed helmet and a big sword at his hip, and a distinctive figure dressed in a bright green salwar chemise and a matching broad headscarf over her head and shoulders. The concert party inspected the assembled parade walking briskly down each of the rows, stopping briefly on occasion to exchange pleasantries. Michael, in full faux Newcastle mode, provided an irreverent commentary on this. The state visit by the Prime Minister of Pakistan, the first woman to head a democratic government in a Muslim-majority nation. Gradually, I was looking after bigger and bigger bargaining units with higher profiles within the union. It was an obvious and effective apprenticeship. Granted, I did have to verbally beat Joe into agreeing a higher appraisal score than the organisation clearly expected him to give me, but then I wouldn't have been very good at my chosen career if I'd not accomplished that, would I? But the conservatism of the union reared its head again some months later, when a rare promotion opportunity came up. I applied, as did just about everyone who was eligible. It was a solid application, bit of a lacklustre interview, 
and no surprise when I heard a fellow member of my grade, but with oodles more service, had got the job. No, it was the feedback that was a kicker. Literally, oh, just stick around and in seven or eight years, you'll be ready. I started looking for something new the very next day. And I couldn't have found anything more different. But that, as they say, is another story. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes. Production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at makesyouthink.com. Thanks for listening.